Listener emails, images, observations, and New Year's wishes on episode 292 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris, and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up the night sky and asking, what would you like to see in 2023? First, uh, we have a, a thank you for a new Patreon supporter, Shane. Yeah, big thanks to Robert. Um, he uh, he recently... Uh, I guess started supporting us on on Patreon. Although I, I think he might have in the past too. I can't remember, but regardless, um, thanks Robert and thanks to all of our Patreon supporters. We certainly appreciate it. And uh, he's associated with Analog Sky. Uh, so why don't you tell us a little bit about that, Chris? Yeah, I was going back and forth with Robert a bit because, uh, and yeah, the the name Analog Sky was familiar to me, but but I don't know. I I spent a lot of time looking at binoculars, and and maybe that's just how it crossed my my mind before. But uh, but like you said, um, you know, I, I think uh, we've chatted with him before. But Analog Sky makes these three D printed binoculars, and he's just kind of getting uh, this up and running, or he started getting it up and running right around the pandemic. But I think originally they were going to go for a, a really big set, but these are. Um, sort of uh, like 50 and 80 millimeter binocular patterns and that that you download and then you can uh, get printed. Um, I don't want to give too much of it away because I think he's going to launch in, in March or something like that. But people can go and check out what uh, what they've got on the go so far at analogsky.co. And uh, yeah, I thought they were pretty cool. Um, kind of reminded me in a way of those uh, binoculars that Glenn LeDrew um, had made up and written a Sky and Telescope article about. Oh, man. It was, uh, do I still have it open here? It was a long time ago. No, I don't still have it open. But um, anyway, what what essentially you do is you buy a couple sets of uh, of lenses off the uh, off eBay or, or whatever, and then you, you install those with some uh, diagonal mirrors and uh, the rest you get 3D printed at a 3D print shop. And then, uh, yeah, you can basically put in any eyepieces you want. So I was like looking and checking out like, ooh, maybe I'll buy another 22 millimeter Nagler and and get a pair of these uh, set up at some point. And I'd have uh, just about a 10 degree field of view in a in a 50 millimeter binocular. So uh, so anyway, um, I, I don't know if I mentioned this to you, Shane, but I, I think I included you in some of these because I was just like, super interested in uh in his project there and um he's uh he's in the same telescope making group as tom otbus who we interviewed back in early mm -hmm. november um but anyway um i did ask robert if he'd be interested in coming on the show when he launches the product mm -hmm. and because uh, he's all about the visual side of things um but sort of putting a a modern uh take on it using 3d printing technology to make binoculars which you and i have done before so this is right up our alley yeah yeah when uh, uh when, when uh the correspondence was happening and and he mentioned these binoculars i was very intrigued it's super cool um the uh he's got a, a twitter and a facebook and everything supporting um i guess this venture and there's a lot of photos of the pieces and everything involved it's uh it looks like quite the project i'm i'm super curious to see what this turns into yeah i'm really curious to see as well um yeah that's right up my alley uh like i was telling you before i'm i'm saving up for something else right now i'm, I'm having trouble sort of you know it, it seems like when i'm not saving up for anything <laughs> when the money's already spoken for um yeah 
nothing's coming up. But now that I'm saving up for something, uh, listeners keep sending me ideas. Like I had like four people send me stuff this week. I'm like, oh, I want to buy that. I want, oh, that's a cool little telescope. Oh, these are amazing 3D printing binoculars. There was something else. Oh, trip to Australia. Somebody sent it wasn't. And then I looked at them like, oh, well, it's going to be super expensive. And I found like a flight sale. I almost went to Australia for March because I found like this super great deal on a flight to Australia from here. It was cheaper than my trip back across Canada here a few weeks ago. So, but anyway, really having trouble resisting the evil powers that be. So, (laughs) (laughs) yes, the desire to uh, do more observing with different equipment or in different locations. Yeah. So we had a lot of, uh, we had a lot of listener emails there, Shane. Um, It's a lot of fun. I really enjoy getting listener emails. Uh, Yep. Sure about you. Yeah. We've had quite a few over the past few weeks. eh? Yeah. Yeah. It just never stops, which is great. I love it. And kind of say this podcast is, is made possible with the listeners because when we started, we didn't intend to have as many episodes. We just, uh, we just wouldn't, we wouldn't have enough of our own observations or topics to, uh, to go through on a, on a two a week basis. I, I, that, I don't think I would be able to do that. I don't know about you. Well, particularly this time of the year, Chris, like we just don't have great conditions to observe, you know, like again, this past week, I don't know if we had a clear night. Um, and if we did, it might've been a, a very small window to observe when I was probably sleeping. So, yeah. um, it's hard, it's hard to talk about astronomy observations when it's cloudy, just about all winter here. <laughs> so, so it's nice to have, uh, you know, these emails to not just discuss, but to sort of live vicariously through. Um, I really enjoy it. Yeah, it's neat. And then uh, people were sending in some questions, uh, you know, comments, uh, sending in images. And, uh, you know, we also uh, appreciate the listener support through uh, Patreon, other donations. So thank everybody. So uh, yeah, let's get going. Maybe I'll just uh, read this, this intro and, uh, or do you want to maybe do you have the notes open? Can you read the intro? Yeah. And then I'll, I guess this was an email to me. So we'll go, go for it. All right. So I uh, had this nice email from Jim over the holidays uh, with holiday wishes and um, great uh, hour long or hours long exposure of Barnard's loop and the Orion and molecular cloud and brought out some really nice features like M78 and a horse head nebula. One of the things I really liked about, uh, about Jim's image was right below uh, Alnilem, which is the middle star in, in Orion's belt, which coincidentally, unplanned, we talked about in uh, in a podcast we recorded yesterday with Dave Chapman, which will come out uh, a week from the day this one drops. So come Yes, on. episode 294. Episode 294, exactly. And in this image, you can see this gap right below that middle star in Orion's belt, which it's something I talk about in my wide field wonders list in the observer's handbook. And it's one of the most um, frequently asked questions I get about that list because a lot of people often say like, that's not a visible thing, or I tried to take a photo of it and I couldn't even get it on a photo. So how could you see it? But uh, his image captures it, it perfectly. Whereas you have um, the large nebulae from, you know, that uh, IC 434 and um, in the uh, Horsehead Nebula region, uh, extending to almost that middle star in Orion's belt. And then there's kind of like a break or a gap, and then it kind of starts up again. And that is something that uh, that you can see visually 
it's it is very difficult to see but uh, you can see it in binoculars i've seen it in my 7x35s and i think i saw it in your 12x36s one night we were in the winter i think when you first got them and anyway uh it is something that is that is visible pretty cool anyway uh, jim goes on to write uh i hope you got home safely and uh, celebrated a great new year a couple of months ago, we exchanged emails about your observations in Iran and mentioned my hope to capture a wide-field image of Barnard's Loop. I managed to capture a couple of hours of data last night on a four-panel mosaic with my 40-millimeter refractor, which has 180-millimeter focal length. I think it's one of those Ascar ones, isn't it? Uh, could be. I'm not sure. I think those are the ones people seem to be using. I'm hoping to add more exposures with the clouds dis- um, when the clouds dissipate in a couple of weeks. Well, I'm happy with the start, Orion rules the night sky for me this time of year. Hope for clear skies and what attempts to you, Jim. So that was a pretty nice one, a pretty nice uh, image there. And I think he updated me with uh, additional images and that sort of thing. It was uh, pretty cool. But I, I just really like that that image you sent because it uh, really shows Barnard's loop really well, like the brighter portions and the thing that I noticed with uh, with his image is that uh, the stuff that you can see in the image is, is the stuff that seems to pop out for me when I'm using like an H-beta filter. So uh, pretty nice, uh, pretty nice image there. Yeah. The other thing I like about it, like you see Barnard's Loop, uh, M42, the Belt of Orion, all of this is in one image. Like it's a, it's a very wide field. Um, and when you see the horse head, <laughs> uh, it just gives you a real good uh, scale of how, how, I guess, how small the horse head really is. And mm. and like oftentimes when you see images of the horse head, it's really just the horse head in the image. And, you know, it looks like this uh, incredible object um, and it is quite neat. It's just, I think the scale is often lost in most photographs. And when you see it in such a wide field here and it's like this little black dot, essentially, yeah. it, uh, it really, you know, adds that context of, of what you might be looking for if you're trying to observe the horse head. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, like my any observations I've made of the horse head, like through my small telescopes, have kind of mimicked what what is shown in this image. So mm-hmm. yeah, pretty good. Just sort of a little notch in the nebula, just the, the visible nebula. Yeah, just a little notch in in that nebulosity there, even when I'm zoomed in. But I think his image there is about, I think it's just about I think it's 10 degrees high by like eight degrees wide or something like that. So it's well representative of, of, uh, my observations with the, uh, Borg, uh, 50 F5 that you made me up and that I use with my two inch, uh, Massey MI piece. So very nice. Yeah. Right on. And then Peter sent us a a pretty cool image of M33 and, uh, maybe I'll just read that one. So Peter says, hi, Chris and Shane, happy new year and also best wishes for great observing. Enjoyed the holiday period shows very much. Brian Ventrudo is a special guy. Uh, The nights here are blanketed in clouds for the moment, so not much going on. Uh, I've attached a recent image of M33 from early December. It was taken with a new uh, ASI, I think, uh, 533MC Pro with a square sensor through the Takahashi FC100DZ with a 0.66 reducer and an Optolong L-Pro filter. Uh, It's a stack of 30 by 2 minute exposures. There's minimal processing of the image. I don't really know how uh, yet. Uh, The TAC optics 
are really something uh, with no distortion of the stars right to the edge of the field. Uh, hope to catch this at the eyepiece under uh, dark sky sometime. All the best from Peter. Yep. Yeah, that that image is uh, quite nice, you know, and and it it sort of reminds me of just the visual views I would have of M thirty three through my twelve inch. Um, now, the image, especially the core of the galaxy uh, here, is is brighter than what I saw through my twelve inch. But in this image, the arm so M thirty three is basically a, a face on spiral galaxy, and through my twelve inch, I could. Like kind of faintly discern a couple of those spiral arms, and in this image, you can faintly discern some of those spiral arms too. And and uh, it just to me, it really represents uh, what the visual view was like of this uh, many years ago for me. Yeah, it kind of looks like um, sort of like wispy clouds, cumulus clouds that have been stirred up into uh, into like a vortex or a spiral pattern. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I like it. So Wade from Australia, uh, he had some um, feedback. I think he was the one that sent us the link to the, uh, I think it's called OzFest or something like that. Anyway, the, the star party down, down there. Anyway, Wade goes on to say, hey guys, just catching up on the podcast. I heard you talk about wide-filled eyepieces in episode 285. I thought I would put forward an argument for the 35 millimeter pan. He oh, said, yes. screaming at my phone, but you couldn't hear me. <laughs> It's funny, he's not the only one that said that sort of comment in the past. Um, I know Dave Dave Chapman in the past sometimes will write me an email where I'll call him and we'll be talking. He goes, oh, I was listening to your podcast the other day and I was like screaming back at my earbuds or whatever. But, you know, it's great. Yeah, if you guys ever think of something that uh, you feel passionate about, yeah, drop us a line. It's great. He said, this is not as wide as the 41 pan or the 31 Nagler but the uh, 35 millimeter pin optic is lighter and smaller than both of them. 200 grams less, same weight as the 22 Nagler, but a wider true field of view, bigger exit pupil, but less apparent field of view. Wider tr true field of view than a 30 millimeter um, ultra flat field, but a little heavier, 200 grams more. Works perfectly with F5 scopes, giving a seven millimeter exit pupil and tons of eye relief. Actually too much for me, but Teleview sells an, an eye cup extender, which works perfectly. Just my two cents. Clear skies. Wade, what are your, what are your thoughts on the thirty-five millimeter pan chain? Uh, I love that eyepiece. Um, that was my first. I'm trying to think. That was my first two-inch eyepiece that I had bought. Um, and prior to that, I just I was strictly inch and a quarter, mm -hmm. and I had a twenty-four millimeter pan optic, which I really enjoyed using in my eight-inch uh, Dobsonian as well as my twelve-inch. Um, but, you know, as I read more and more stuff in magazines and astronomy books, people talked about the advantages of a wide field eyepiece and helping you locate objects. Um, so, you know, my scopes then, well, the, uh, the light bridge that I had was an F5. So, um, you know, 35 millimeter eyepiece was kind of like the, the ideal size, uh, you know, in terms of, uh, uh, exit pupil that I would want. So that's, that's what I bought was the, the 35 millimeter pan optic and it blew me away. Um, like I was really astonished by how big of a field view I had and how it did actually help me to find objects. It was, it was quite nice. Um, and I used the, I used that eyepiece like crazy. It, it lived in the telescope an awful lot. And similar to Wade, I had to also, um, buy an eye cup extender, um, without the eye cup extender, like the eye relief is so large that I found 
like you had to just have perfect eye placement or else I would experience blackouts. Um, but the eye cup extender really solved that. So, um, I highly recommend that. Um, but anyway, I kept that eyepiece for a long time. And then I got into the world of refractors and I ended up with a, a 41 millimeter panoptic because I wanted the widest field of view I could possibly get. Mm -hmm. Um, and then not long after that, I purchased, uh, the, the Teleview Genesis SDF telescope, which is the predecessor to the NP 101. And really like the 31 Nagler and the NP 101, like those, both of those instruments or, or, you know, uh, you know, the eyepiece and telescope are almost designed to work together. Like it's just the match, like the perfect match. So when I got the, the Genesis SDF, I thought I should probably get the 31 Nagler because of this, you know, special match that they seem to have there. And between the 31 uh, Nagler, the 35 pan and the 41 pan, the 35 sort of became, I don't know, a little redundant. Like I just wasn't using it. It was either the 41 pan or the 31 Nagler. So I ended up selling the 35 pan and, uh, there's times I do regret it just because it is so much lighter than both, uh, the 31 Nagler and the 41, uh, pan optics. So, um, it's a great eyepiece, uh, weight is right. And, you know, if, if, if people had that as piece, they certainly would not regret it yeah yeah it's uh i like the 35 millimeter pan like you i didn't buy it but i had it on loan um another observer in the astronomy club i belonged to at the time uh had one and uh, loaned it out to me for like a few weeks or a month or something like that and i used it a ton and uh but i did find the weight a, a little bit much on my my smaller refractors so um you know i i didn't end up uh buying one but i i you know, I'm very familiar with it, having used it plenty. And uh, yeah, just a phenomenal uh, wide field eyepiece. Um, and like like he was saying, it you know, as far as those bigger, heavier two-inch eyepieces go, it's, uh, it's not at the top end of the big and heavy eyepieces. So it's certainly big and heavy, um, but it's sort of in that same range as like the 40 millimeter um, Pentax XW, which is what I ended up getting instead of the 35 pan because like you shane i wanted to have an eyepiece that would work um in my refractors which are a little bit longer and you can get just a slightly wider uh, field of view there yeah yeah exactly all right so we have uh we had some holiday wishes from mark radici of the refreshing views uh youtube channel so always nice to hear from mark he's been a guest on the show uh, a couple times anyway if people are interested they should check out um, mark's refreshing views uh, YouTube channel. He does lots of uh, interesting, mostly visual, a little bit of astrophotography stuff on there through his uh, his Refreshing Views Observatory. But uh, maybe I'll let you take this email away, Shane. Sure. Um, uh, Mark says, hi, Chris and Shane. I hope this email finds you well. How is the weather in your part of the world? Um, well, not very good. <laughs> uh, we have been hearing about the terrible winter storms, so I hope this finds you and your family safe. I imagine your observing opportunities are limited for the time being. Uh, I am writing this as I listen to the Radcliffe Wave episode. Fascinating stuff. Uh, I am in the observatory under a clear, calm sky, uh, and then in brackets before the next rain front moves in. It is simply wonderful to listen to this while I watch Mars on my laptop screen uh, before I go uh, and track Comet C2020V2ZTF uh, as, as it tracks past Polaris. 
Uh, in the meantime, I hope Father Christmas was kind and left a high-end apple for you both with top-notch eyepieces. I clearly have not been very good as my C14 Edge did not arrive. Uh, stay safe and speak soon. Best regards, Mark Rodici. Yeah, thanks for that, Mark. Really appreciate it. I, I really hope he gets the C14 Edge. You know, I really like his setup. It's funny because um, before he was on the show, I was familiar with his channel and then I think you had some sort of correspondence with him. He came on the show and so many times, like I'm looking at stuff and his channel pops up because um, I think we have a very similar way of observing or something and, and, or the way that we like to have our gear set up. Like he sort of is um, like about a year or two ahead of me. So I've been looking and he set up one of those um, AZGT sixes and uh, he put his 90 millimeter refractor on once. I think it's a William optics or similar. And then he's got his C11 on the other side. And I, I really think that's the setup I want. I want to put my 125 SD on one side. And then, you know, I was thinking about getting like a different scope or something like that, but I think getting like an 11 inch Schmidt grain for the other side might be, uh, might be a neat option. So I got sort of the wide field, uh, five inch, uh, you know, apocrymat that can do planetary and wide field observing, and then an 11 inch on the other side. People should write, let me know. Is, would that be a good setup for me? I'd be curious to hear what people think. Well, I'll tell you what I think, Chris. There's an opportunity <laughs> for you right now. I think you're out to lunch. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, so, um, <clears throat> excuse me, um, uh, another amateur astronomer in Canada uh, lives in uh, the neighboring province to us. Uh, his name's Tyson. Tyson M. Oh, on yeah, I Cloudy saw Nights. that. I know what you're going to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so Tyson has some amazing uh, telescopes, and um, he's selling some because I think he's trying to buy a 200, uh, an 8-inch tech uh, Apple. Um, but he sold his 25-inch daub, uh, which would have oh, been amazing. Yeah, I know he sold that already. Yeah, it sold real quick. Um, but he has a 9-inch iStar refractor. Oh, I for $5,500, which is like, like that's a significant amount of money, but uh, for what that telescope is probably worth, I think that that's a steal of a deal. So I think you should buy the nine inch. And uh, I know that that is sort of out of, uh, out of phase with your current plan, but you know, these opportunities don't come up too often. So. I, I looked at that. I did. No, yep. no joke. I did look at it and, and had pause. <laughs> and yes. Because, yeah. I've often thought that would be that would be a telescope I'd want to have. I guess my concerns with a nine inch refractor are that it is um that is like definitely needs a permanent home. Yes. And the problem is I'd be I'd be choosing between having a permanent home for my telescopes and owning a telescope that needed a permanent home. So it's a bit of a catch twenty two with that instrument for me. Um at this time anyway. I think mm -hmm. that uh yeah, I would struggle to um to ever get an observatory if I, if I spent all the money on the, uh, on the refractor. Cause I think that's about my observatory budget. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I very loosely considered it. Um, but I don't have a mount that could handle that. And, um, you know, I think the mount would probably be about another $3,000, which again, you know, the, the telescope though, I, I think it's probably worth at least twice what he's asking. So oh, I think so. Yeah. I think it's a good deal. Right. I really, I really had hoped that maybe he would he would sell it eventually. So I was actually more disappointed in anything that he put up for sale. I figured that he probably would sell it eventually, but I kind of had hoped that maybe uh, it might be, if it was two years down the road or three years down the road, three years down the road for sure, I, I probably would have been, you know, 
uh, jumping on it because I could have bought it. I could have stored it for another year while I saved up for a proper mount for it. And then, you know, I am building, uh, hoping to build an observatory. And and if if I get one built, it's going to, you know, be built to a size that that would be able to accommodate uh, that telescope if I ever go for it, because I think that would be, you know, the upper limits. But still at the same time, you know, I would like to have my five-inch refractor always ready to go. And I'd like to be able to have the option of switching out the five for the four or any of the other scopes I have. And then as well, uh, still wouldn't have the resolution that like an 11 inch McCasser grain has. And then the other concern I have with such a huge scope is like the difference between, um, you know, looking sort of towards the horizon and looking up overhead, like that eyepiece is going to swing through a huge range where, you know, you're probably going to need to step on a little stepladder to uh, to look through the eyepiece when it's pointed anywhere near the horizon, and then you're going to be uh, you know uh, you know laying down on the floor and looking straight ahead to look at anything towards the zenith. So uh, yeah, there's some challenges there with that scope. I think I, I don't know. I I would need some more time to think about it. Like there's a lot of practical implications for for that. But uh, yeah, well, it definitely changes your observatory design probably just to house something that large because the tube would be enormous. Um, and then probably to, to, um, sort of help out with that awkward eyepiece height, I think you would almost need a, like a pier that has the adjust, like a, an electronic motor that adjusts yeah. height. Um, so it can kind of come up and down based on where that eyepiece is. Yeah. So it, it just adds a whole nother layer of planning and complexity and, and needed gear, uh, to the whole setup. But, you know, Tyson used this as not well, sort of jokingly tongue in cheek here uh, as a grab and go telescope, <laughs> like he did not have a permanent home for it. He had a, like an automotive engine lift that he would put the telescope into the, the, this lift, uh, like kind of use the hydraulics in it to hoist it up high enough that he could then attach it to an alt as mount, uh, an APM, I think it's called like a max load or something yep. like that. Yep, that's it. Yep. Yeah. It's like a T mount and uh, away he'd go, which, um, you know, good on him <laughs> to come up with a solution to, um, you know, making this telescope usable without having to have like two or three people, you know, around to, to mount it and take it down. But, yeah. but, uh, ideally, uh, I think you'd want that in a permanent observatory. Oh, oh, for sure. Like for sure. Like a hundred percent, that would just be you know, crazy to try to have as, as anything, but, but, you know, I was looking cause, cause, uh, again, like some months ago there was, um, you know, good, good, big refractors do come up from time to time for good pricing. There was a mead seven inch, um, mm-hmm. mat that came up that I hemmed and hot over too. Yeah. I remember that. And so that also is, uh, like it's 180 millimeter scope by F9. Anyway, it comes out to about approximately the same focal length as the um, as the nine inch f seven seven. So, they I, I looked at somebody who had one, and they had the um, the mead in a ten by ten observatory. So it is possible to uh, to get you know, and it worked well. They said it worked well. There was two people; it was a husband and wife duo, and that's what they were using. I think it's like in Mississauga or somewhere. Anyway, I think it's in Canada. Anyway, they, they had built a 10 by 10 observatory for it to meet those kind of requirements. And, uh, yeah, they weren't having any, any trouble with it in, um, in that kind of observatory. So, you know, I think if I go for 10 by 10, I think, I think I'll be, I'll be okay. Maybe we'll see. 
Yeah. And if anybody is interested in a nine inch refractor and you live in Canada, it is on astrobicell.com. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If somebody wants to take ownership of it for four or five years while I get myself straightened out, then, uh, yeah, then <laughs> we can maybe do, do an, or, or I can house it for somebody. If you want to buy it, Shane, I can give it a good home. <laughs> well, you know, I would almost want to buy it just to take it down to grasslands once or twice and see how that thing performs under a, an almost perfect sky, because <laughs> yeah. I think that would be absolutely incredible. Yeah, for sure. For sure. You know, and the other thing I was thinking, you know, that because uh, I, I just don't think I can swing it. I mean, I could, like I said, I could buy that telescope and not build an observatory or I can build an observatory because I think an observatory is going to run about what that scope amount it would, would run. Mm hmm. And maybe not even that much. So, and I still have all the money for that. So anyway, um, but is the, uh, there is always the option of, of maybe going with the eight inch F6 at some point in time. Yeah, exactly. There's always options and there will always be other big telescopes for sale. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's surprising. Like, uh, you know, the, the things that I've seen come through in, in the past year have been, uh, uh, well, this at nine inch F77, I've seen one or two. 8 inch F6, um, I saw 7 F7, and I saw the Mead uh, 7 inch F9. Um, you know, and it's kind of like, in a way, for all those scopes, pluses and minus, they're all sort of six and one half a dozen to the other. They're all massive, big, uh, sort of at the the top end of uh, the largest amateur refractors that, that one can sort of reasonably get. So mm -hmm. anyway, anyway, maybe we'll move on to uh, Chris from Long, Long Island. Yeah, yeah. Let's so yeah, I'll take a read of this. Um, yeah, I've chatted with Chris a uh, fair bit in the past. We've chatted with Chris a fair bit in the past and he writes, uh, dear Chris and Shane or Shane and, and Chris, uh, that's what he wrote. I wanted to take a moment to wish you both Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. Haven't emailed in a while, but I have been listening twice a week, nonstop. Still a great podcast. Thank you. Yeah, and thank you for your support. We appreciate it. This fall, I changed my IP strategy. I have a grab and go rig that I keep set up and near the door. What a great idea. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> An AT60ED on a DSV-M, which is the desert sky. I don't know what the V-M stands for though. And a carbon fiber tripod. More importantly, I keep three plossel, a, a three plossel set with it. Teleview 32, 15, and 8. I also have a Teleview 2.5X Paramate. That's a great, what a great setup. It's perfect, really. It covers everything. Covers everything. And I just, I think that uh, the good portable 60 millimeter scopes, like, I I can't believe how much I, I use my, my Takahashi FS60. Um, I remember when I bought that, I really thought I was making a huge mistake to, uh, to spend so much money on a small, on the smallest portable telescope, but that telescope gets absolutely used, uh, twice as much as anything else. And there's so many nights where I otherwise wouldn't set up like the, uh, uh, the, the Mars occultation there in December lunar mm -hmm. eclipses. Um, cause I can just grab the whole thing. In fact, um, I think I'm going to upgrade my FS 60. I think I'm going to, uh, buy a new tube ring and I'm going to actually make it a little lighter even just, just to really tweak out that performance. But I think these AT 60 ED scopes are, you know, from what I saw, like you had the, uh, the William optics 61, uh, ED Shane. And I, I think on every target except for Mars, I think that they're basically the same as, as the TAC or they're pretty, pretty close anyway. 
Yeah, well, the the William Optics uses FPL fifty three glass, which is uh, like a synthetic fluorite essentially. So it uh, it should match tack performance pretty close. But um, the uh, all, all of these little scopes are getting so good now. You know, like the quality yeah. is just really quite amazing, actually. Yeah, like if you look at the you know and and just I remember just after I bought my because I have a FPL fifty three in my um Borg 125 SD, which is the five inch. And then um Skywatcher started making the 120 EDs after that. Mm-hmm. And I remember looking through a bunch of them. And like you can boy, you can see the difference, but wow, is it's very, very slim on a telescope that costs, you know, I think less than half, or maybe it's like, you know, 40% as as much as my scope. Uh you know, you're you're really only getting like about a ten percent bump, and I, I it's about the same with uh, with the tack. But it's kind of like the ultimate um, sixty millimeter scope. But I think the main downside, the only real downside with the uh, tack FS sixty, I don't know why I'm talking about this so much. I guess I've been thinking about it lately, but that's a whole different story. Is that um, I don't want to get it damaged or lose it, and I was traveling recently and I didn't take it because there was a, a high chance of luggage loss. And so I didn't, um, I didn't want to want to put any of the parts in my, in my luggage because I thought for sure, uh, well, I didn't think for sure. I, we, we were fairly certain we were going to lose a bag. Uh, we didn't, but tons and tons of people were losing luggage over the holidays. So I just, I just didn't take it. It was fine, but I would have preferred to take a telescope with me. Um, that's kind of how, how I like to roll. So anyway, this setup here on the desert sky, I like, I wish you wrote more about how that desert sky works. I'm going to, I'm going to keep reading here. I think that's a nice set. Teleview 32 loved mine until I crushed it in a vice. Um, see like our second episode. I I know I, you you know, you hear of things that amateur astronomers do. That would be a neat episode. Like what is the stupidest thing you've done? Like everybody does a stupid thing. Like I crushed otherwise perfectly good teleview plossel 32 millimeter which is not an inexpensive eyepiece i crushed that in a vice i admit it i did that and my friend who i did it in front of and and he didn't laugh or anything my friend tim he didn't laugh he was really sympathetic and i i think like we're both in pretty big shock and i'm it's not like i just sort of bent it a little i mean no no like the glass actually made that terrible crunching sound like you know, the kid from a Christmas story when he steps on his glasses in the backyard after firing. Anyway, uh, it's just like the, the worst thing. Right. But he told me after that, he told me his, um, his, his terrible faux pas, which was he had, um, like some discoloration on an eight inch Smith Casser green, which was his first telescope. And he decided to take, um, something almost abrasive to the lens to try to get it off and he was scrubbing and stuff was coming off. He's like, Oh, this is great. I'm getting it off. I'm getting it off. And it turned out he took the coating off the lens of the Schmidt Casa green. <laughs> Yikes. All right. I'll- well, and, and I dropped my tack 76 off the mount. Uh, That's right. I talked about it, <clears throat> excuse me, about a year or so ago, just mounting it stupidly. So you're right. We all do it. Yeah. All right. He goes on to say, uh, I get a lot of use out of the setup and I never want for other eyepieces than what I have on board. This made me look critically at the eyepieces ahead for my other refractors. And I decided to go with a three or four um, eyepiece 
uh, set up for each of those in total. I also have grown tired of super heavy eyepieces because of balance. So I sold my Nagler 31, 5, and 3.5, as well as my Ethos 10. I still have the Nagler 17 millimeter on the classifieds waiting to be sold. The money for those sales funded the AstroTech 102 EDL and the Batter 1.25 inch Zeiss Prism Click Lock Diagonal. This 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 guy, Chris, he's more after you now than me, Shane. My mm-hmm. three refractors are the 152, 102, 72 will now share the Panoptic 24, Nagler 13, Nagler 7, and the Nagler 3-5 Planetary Zoom. Super simple. That is super nice. I also dust off my pencils from my first uh sketch i dusted on pencils and did my first sketch that's a crazy did you see this this is his first lunar sketch he did uh using a moon map site yeah yeah so i think he had the moon map site on a screen and then just to get used i think to the pencils and everything yeah. sketch that but yeah it's incredible he's yeah that's that's an i yeah you got to get out of the eyepiece chris uh, I haven't been out observing since November work, uh, was tired me out. We adopted a one-year-old dog and it's been a week of single digit temperatures, uh, and very windy here lately, which I'm sure you experienced worse there. We have, but there was somebody, somebody wrote us from like Texas or no, it was, oh man, the, his name escapes me, but he was writing from New Jersey and it was, I remember it was minus 12 in New Jersey and it was warm. It was warmer here than in New Jersey. <laughs> well, our temperatures have been great lately, Chris, yeah. you know, it, yeah. you know, truth be told, it's been wonderful the last two or three weeks, but it's just been cloudy and lots of humidity. Yeah. Anyway, um, Suga's on to say, I'm looking forward to getting out, uh, once or twice a week, uh, the first light to get first light on my 102 millimeter, take care of Chris in Long Island. So yeah, thanks so much for that, Chris. Yeah. Th- I think this, this one's going to speak a little bit more to you, Shane, I think then, uh, because you're you're uh, somebody I think that is more saddled along to the one to quarter inch eye pieces than I have. Yeah. Yeah. Particularly with my smaller telescopes. Um, I just don't like using two inch accessories with my like 70 millimeters and 50 millimeter telescopes. And even when I had the William optic 61, uh, which I've sold, um, you know, I did use some of my two inch stuff in there, but I just, I don't like it because of how much weight it adds to the end, mm-hmm. you know, a two inch diagonal, no matter which one you use substantially heavier than a inch and a quarter, particularly yeah. a prism. Um, and then of course the eyepieces, especially if you're, uh, using plossels, they're so light compared to anything two inch. Um, anyway, yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'm very similar. I have a lot I still have all of my two inch glass, but I barely use it. And I kind of question why I have it. Um, I, my place, man, don't worry about it. I, <laughs> okay. You'll store it for me. Thanks. Um, but yeah, I could totally relate to Chris. I'm, uh, I'm very similar in my approach now. Uh, once in a while, I do really, really enjoy those wide fields, uh, particularly under uh, darker skies. Um, which is why I'm still hanging on to some of that two inch stuff, but, um, yeah, I, I love this approach. Um, there's, uh, like my, my simplest setup is, um, a 24 millimeter panoptic for the wide field. Um, then I have the, uh, Nikon MC2 zoom, which is a 21 to 21 millimeter to nine millimeter focal range. And then the, uh, the Nagler zoom, the three to six millimeter kind of covers the whole spectrum and you have three eyepieces and they're all quite lightweight. Um, but uh, I, I really like his refractor lineup too, a 152, a 102, and a 72. That's nice. Uh, 
Yeah. Yeah. I'm really like where my next move will probably be telescope wise is likely a 152. Um, I've been kind of desiring one for quite a while and there's one for sale on astral buy sell right now, which is uh, a pretty good buy. I think. Yeah. Uh, and I've been mulling it over. Sorry. Because I, I found like with my, cause I've compared my, uh, TAC 100 to my uh, Borg 125SD, which has Pentax glass, which I won't sell because it's really good. But um, but boy, the difference is again, it's it's much more subtle than than you think. That mm -hmm. uh, telescope that's twenty five percent larger is uh, is going to be like I notice a pretty big jump going from like an eighty to a hundred. I feel like that seems like a huge jump. Yep. And going from the 100 to 125, it's subtle. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, and that's why I sold my 120 Skywatcher ED. Like once I purchased that uh, TSA 102, I felt that they were a lot closer than they were different in terms yeah. of the views. And, and um, uh, you know, the, the 120 was still a beautiful telescope, but I didn't foresee me using it as much, particularly because with the TSA 102, I can use my bino viewer natively, mm -hmm. uh, with the Skywatcher, I would have had to physically cut the tube to shorten it in order for me to use my bino viewer natively. Yeah. So, you know, those factors all together led me to sell it, but, um, uh, like the, the TS optic, uh, 152 refractors. Um, in fact, I think a lot of their doublets have a removable tube, just like, right. I think it screws into the focuser, but yeah. you remove this tube. And I think they're typically 120 millimeters. You remove that and then it's bino friendly. Like you can use your bino viewer natively and, and that's part of the overall design. So I'm really intrigued by those 152 doublets because of that aspect. You know, it, it, it's a bino viewing scope, or you can kind of convert it real quickly back to uh, mono viewing. So, um, you know, keep, stay tuned that that's probably something in my future. Yeah. Yeah. I hope so. Like, I'd love to look through that. That would for sure be great. Uh, Larry sent us an email. Do you want to take it away with Larry? Yeah. Yeah. So Larry emails us, uh, quite regularly. Uh, Larry, uh, is from Japan and, uh, he says, dear Chris and Shane, uh, Merry Christmas. Hope you are both, uh, enjoying your Christmas holiday. Really enjoyed the 12 eyepieces of Christmas episode. A lot of fun to listen to. Uh, I was very happy to hear that many of the eyepieces that I use made it on to the lists. So I thought I would share my own 12 eyepieces. Uh, for Shane, there is a, there is an almost complete set of TAC MC orthos uh, from the 25 millimeter on down to the seven. Uh, don't have the five millimeter and don't really want to jam my eye in that tight uh, with the four millimeter uh, and the 2.8 millimeter high orthos as well. Uh, I think the set came out to be about $450 in total, so well under the $100 limit. Uh, these seven are my primary double star and planetary eyepieces. Uh, for Chris, the Pentex XW 10mm and 7mm for more wide field and medium power work, uh, about 60 and 80 power in my 80mm F7. Uh, these two are for clusters and bright nebula, so that makes nine. Uh, the two Barlows I keep in my kit are the Nikon 1.6 and the Takahashi two times Barlow. The TAC Barlow is not that well known, but combined with the TAC 1.25 inch prism and TAC MC orthos, it's wonderful, uh, clear and sharp. 
Uh, to round out the 12, I have a Japanese made 20 millimeter, 70 degree eyepiece. Uh, and I'm not even sure how to translate the company's name. And I don't think they sell their eyepieces and binos outside of Japan. It is very light and sharp to the edge. A nice eyepiece. Uh, hope you both get some observing in over the holidays. Clear skies. And yeah. uh, I can certainly, you know, people have heard me wax on many times about the TAC MC orthos. I, <laughs> I think they're wonderful eyepieces. Um, you know, and just back to Chris's email, actually, about like a lightweight setup, you really can't beat using 0.965 inch eyepieces if you really want the ultimate lightweight setup. Um, and the nice thing, you know, I guess, again, if you're not super concerned about wide fields, is if you're using an orthoscopic eyepiece, uh, a 0.965 inch or a one and a quarter inch barrel will not change the field of view. You're still getting about that 40 degree field of view that orthos always provide. You're just, if you're using the 965 inch, you're just getting a much lighter, much smaller eyepiece, which uh, has a lot of benefit. Yeah, we had some, I had some recent correspondence. Larry is an enabler, an enabler. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, we're going to, I think we'll do maybe a whole episode on correspondence and then at one point we'll have to, um, yeah, that, that's a great email. Yes. You know, sort of our apologies in a way, I guess maybe we should have mentioned that, uh, yeah, we have, uh, we're, we're a little bit behind in getting to the Christmas emails. Yeah. We're, st I'm, I'm still getting over this call. I don't know if people can tell or not, but my voice still isn't all there, but, uh, yeah, we kind of, I think had intended maybe to to record this earlier, but, uh, it's all, it's all good. But, uh, yeah, looking forward to maybe getting a piece of gear that, uh, that Larry recommended. I'll move on and, and, uh, read Mark's email. I think this is our last email. Sounds good. Hi, Chris and Shane. I've just greatly enjoyed the 12 eyepieces of Christmas episode, a classic in my view. I want to drop you a quick note to say thanks for another year of inspiration, entertainment information. You know, I have to say something that's you know, sort of out of, I guess, out of this email about um, probably the the episodes that people seem to enjoy the most are the ones that usually we come up with at the last minute. Because I had some other ideas for what we would do. And then this one, we just kind of cobbled together out of a few ideas for a bunch of different shows mm -hmm. that we agreed not to do. <laughs> made this this one on the 12 eye pieces of christmas instead and people really enjoyed it so it's kind of funny sometimes you know I, you know it's like you, you stay up late the night before the papers do and then you get a good mark you know kind of <laughs> yeah i liked that episode it was fun you know it was one where we really just bantered back and forth and yeah. uh, it was a pretty open script which was nice the open script i think uh usually our show notes can be many pages long that was like a one page. <laughs> anyway, good stuff. Thank you. Um, my own plans for 2023 observing include a planned purchase of the new AZ GTI X, which will allow me to mount an ST80 next to my Mac 127, enjoy wide field and high field, high mag views um, aligned together. There may be a small plan in there to upgrade the ST80 to an ED instrument in there, most probably uh, uh, Skywatcher Evo Star 72 ED. Shane, I see you. I see you. Is it, did I read that wrong? AZ GTI X? 
Uh, I just highlighted it to copy and paste it because this is a new mount I'm not super familiar with. So I wanted to see what the specs were. Yeah, you do this because I'm not that familiar with it either. So take take a look. I'll finish reading the email and then we'll chat about it. Looking forward to uh, getting back on the Deep Sky track after distinctly, uh, distinctly planetary themes, summer and fall. Wishing you and yours a Merry Christmas, peaceful New Year. Hopefully along with some clear skies for you guys to get reasonable temperatures and as always, keep up the great work. It's appreciated. Kind regards, Mark. Yeah, thanks so much, Mark. Really appreciate the uh, Christmas wishes from from everybody, both from the folks um, who you read and and many folks who who wish us uh, happy holidays and happy New Year's. Um, who we just simply couldn't read every every email we received. It's uh, it's a lot of fun, actually. Just where you're looking at that chain, I'll just sort of riff for a second. But um, over the holidays, you know, I was with my family, and you know. I, I don't know if they recall that do a podcast or not, but I was just sitting there and I was getting different emails from people from all over the world. And I'm like, oh, I just got a, you know, somebody sent me a photo that they had taken the night before. Um, I don't, boy, I can't remember the individual's name, but it was from the Outback in Australia somewhere. And so I was sitting there, I'm like, oh, hey, mom, look at this. Someone just sent me this photo from the Outback of Australia they took last night or, or whenever it was. And she was like, what? (laughs) Yeah. You know, and then we're like exchanging emails and there was other people who wrote and I was kind of like sort of reading, reading them out to my family during the holidays. It was pretty, pretty cool to sit there and read. And my wife always loves to hear them. I often um, sit downstairs and she'll be working at night and I'll just sort of read uh, people's, people's emails aloud. It's, uh, it's really nice. Uh, And, you know, people often talk about how uh, everybody in the internet can be so, so negative all the time. And, uh, you know, that, that hasn't been our experience at least so far, thankfully. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I love it. All right. Tell me so, about now. yeah, the, the Skywatcher AZ GTI X appears to be just a little bit more robust or a beefier mount than the GTI that, uh, was the original one. So this one has two saddles on it. So it's, you know, out of the box, it can accommodate two telescopes. Um, otherwise like kind of the design and form factor look pretty similar, Chris, uh, the payload, if you're just running one telescope, it says six kilograms. Uh, if you're running two telescopes, uh, 10 kilograms of total payload. Wow. Um, nice. so a little bit, I think that's a little higher than the GTI and then having the, the second saddle there is kind of nice. So interesting. Well, I don't know what, I don't know what the cost is, but, um, I don't know. I'm just on the Skywatcher page. It looks like they fixed a couple, like a couple of things that I would have recommend it to fix them. I'm trying to see if, uh, anyway, so a couple things I see right off the hop is one, they, uh, put like an extension on and definitely it needs a, a different, it needed a different extension than what came with it. And, uh, that looks like a, like a really nice extension that they've got on there. And then they've also mounted it. I think on the I think it's actually mounted to the to the tripod that I bought aftermarket. So I bought a steel tripod aftermarket, and it looks like they just put it on that uh, to begin with. So it has a smaller or shorter pier that's thicker, and it looks like it's it looks like it's got a better connector to uh, to that pier extension. It looks like they fixed that. And then oh yeah, here I got a better picture. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's my tripod. Or it's or it's a heavier duty tripod anyway. The one that came with it is it was too light in my opinion. Good for astrophotos, maybe with a camera. And um, yeah, it looks like they've just beefed it up. I would like that. I would get that if I was buying it again. 
maybe uh, maybe Skywatcher will give me one. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I'm just looking. Wow, somebody put a big piece of gear on this. Looks like they put. Holy smokes! I gotta look this up now. Now we're going down the rabbit hole. Yeah, I see somebody on Cloudy Nights has old Astrotech 102 ED with a maybe a 70 on it as well. What is that? This yeah, 70 ED. Wow. This person over on Stargazers Lounge, Shane, they put they put uh, Skywatcher Star Travel 120 millimeter f5 on the other side. Holy smokes. It looks like they put an eight inch SCT from Celestron. Oh yeah. I see somebody asking about that here. Wow. That seems like an awful lot to put on that little mount, but that but maybe, maybe it'll work. That might be heavy. And they're yeah. right that they, they're testing out the payload capacity, 9.99 kgs, but, um, that's pretty good. <laughs> I wonder how much this thing costs. I'm not seeing a price on it. We got to get a price here. Maybe is it available in North America? Well, I'm not sure. Um, I'm not seeing it for sale, but like people have it. So I don't know. Don't know where you get it. I see it on APM. I don't know. We'll have to get back to that. We're getting out of time here. All right. Oh, here we go. 479 euros, I believe. Or is that the pound? sign so 500 euros is going to be let's give or take five times 800 canadian yeah, oh, this, that, that was pounds that was british pounds my bad yeah so that's going to be like seven so you're 800 canadian probably shipped and then you're going to pay taxes and duties so this is like a thousand dollar amount for us yep. yeah 783 canadian is what that comes to okay not bad i think i think it's worth it i think like for for slightly more carrying capacity and beefier tripod, better pure. Yeah, I would pay it. Like I'm mm. hoping they put a little bit more quality control. I'm hoping they've just fixed that the interior because the interior was my main complaint, but it looks like they've fixed a lot of little little things with it. We should end this soon. Yeah, we should probably wrap add? this. What's that? Do you have anything else to add to this episode? No, I don't. <laughs> All right. And if you, the listener, have enjoyed this, we would appreciate if you could do us a favor and leave us a five-star rating on your podcatching software or system or whatever you're using and say something fun and positive about the show. And it'll it'll help others find actual astronomy in 2023. We're always happy to get your observing reports and questions to actualastronomy at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, everybody. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.